everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, Volume 5, Issue 249. You can play along with Cane and Rinse, Volume 5. There's only one left. Unbelievable. Our fifth year is coming to a close, and we only have Bloodborne to do. You may have played it. You may not. If you want to cram it between now and the next podcast, you could try that, or you could play the game for a couple of weeks and then listen to the podcast in the gap that we're going to take the break between uh, in the well the holiday season let's call it before we return triumphant with volume six in 2017 anyway more about that in the future as always i'm going to tell you to pop over to canerince.com where you can find reviews and features and articles and links to all our other stuff including our youtube channel our facebook page and our forum and if you enjoy what we do Chiefly these podcasts, I suspect. Uh, There are a number of ways in which you can support us. We have a Patreon uh, where you can donate a dollar a month or whatever you think. And that acts as a a sort of online tips jar and uh, helps us uh, keep on doing what we do. If you prefer to get something real and physical for your hard-earned cash, any that you'd care to put our way, we have a shop at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash rinse and you can buy very excellent Cana Rinse t-shirts and bags uh, and Sound of Play as well, our other podcast. And that will show your support of the site and make you look very cool and keep you warm in the winter. Uh, please do also check out that other podcast of ours, Sound of Play. Uh, the listenership is growing, but it still has a long way to go to catch up with this one. So we know that I'd say something like uh, two in every three of you who listens to this is not listening to Sound of Play. Please rectify this by subscribing. Joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 249, are Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Uh, slightly coldy, but uh, he's on the mend. And uh, Leah Haydu. Hey, hi. Hello. And it was supposed to be Sean O'Brien for a rare Zelda-based appearance. Uh, but at the time of recording, he's currently fighting a brush fire in the United States of America. Hopefully, by the time this show comes out, we can look back on that and laugh. And we're not, uh, this isn't like a memorial episode for Sean. So uh, stay safe out there, Sean. Now, Phantom Hourglass, The Legend of Zelda. This is, I think, our 12th podcast for the 12th main Legend of Zelda release. Obviously, we'll talk about uh, on what, uh, you know, the, the, the changes in system and things like that coming up. But just first, for context, as always, uh, if we could talk about uh, kind of when we became aware of it, when we played it. Uh, and how, if necessary, because there are two ways to play. I have a bit of a, a weird history with the DS in that I bought um, a second-hand uh, DS console from a friend, and it was um, unfortunately the you know the original DS, which I understand is not well loved, and the DS Lite is kind of considered the uh, version of that console to get. So, yeah, I bought the um, original DS off of a friend, and then I started picking up um, a couple of titles that I thought would interest me, um, one of which was Phantom Hourglass. Unfortunately, I never really found the time to really commit to playing the DS. Um, You know, I was really young at the time. I think I was around uh, 17, 18. Um, So I had a lot more free time. So most of that free time was just spent playing home consoles rather than handheld consoles. And I didn't really have much of a commute either. So there wasn't a huge excuse to, you know, bring out the DS at any point in my schedule. So it kind of just sat there, and I, I I played the beginning of Phantom Hourglass and toyed around with it for a bit, but 
then just kind of abandoned it. And then I ended up selling all of my DS games and that DS, which I, you know, really regret um, now because looking back, the DS had such a, um, you know, vibrant library of just a huge... uh, there's a huge variety of different experiences, which which Certainly. I wish I uh, wish I had been a part of. Um, so this was a, a recent completion for me. Um, so I bought the DS cart again um, and slotted it into my 3DS and uh, completed it for the podcast. Right. Uh, yes, I was going to say, you do know you can play all those wonderful DS games on your 3DS, don't you? So, yes, indeed. Uh, you can yeah. catch up with the library that way. Uh, and also some of them, a handful, are on the Wii U Virtual Console as well. Uh, Leah, how about you? Did you play this back in 2007? I did, yeah. Um, and I think it must have been one of the earlier games that I played on a DS Lite. Um, because I did own a uh, an original DS, uh, and then yeah. I traded it in for a, a DS Lite relatively close to when the DS Lite came out, uh, which I think was a year or so before Phantom Hourglass uh, launched. Yeah, that's right. But I did have Phantom Hourglass at launch because I was actually working at GameStop at that time. Um, and so I was very subject to any hype of anything that was coming out that I was even remotely interested in. And in fact, I still have um, on my wall... A, uh, a part of the um, the cardboard standee that uh, we had in the store for Phantom Hourglass. It's like a picture of Link with one of the, the knights um, kind of turned side to side, and uh, yeah. I, I have that still. So um, I, I jumped right in, played it all the way through. Uh, I most recently played uh, for this show, uh, I actually did pick up the Virtual Console, uh, Wii U Virtual Console version, which... It has some issues, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit more uh, about what I think of that mm-hmm. on uh, when we uh, speak about different uh, aspects of the game itself. But um, it's not the best port, I'll say. Um, so we, we we can we can kind of discuss that. But um, I have now played this game through. Uh, I don't believe any more than just that first time and this time. I am glad that I've played it overall. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's not it's not been one of my favorites in recent times. Um, I don't think it's a complete disaster, but there there are some things. Yep. Uh, listeners note, we, we are going to have a spread of opinions on this one, I believe. And uh, and that goes for our correspondence as well. Uh, me, I received this game as a present the first time. It was one of those uh, I've mentioned this before as being one of my favorite ways to receive a game. Uh, it was, I think, the day it came out or maybe the day after. But I think I think it was the day, the Friday it came out in uh, late 2007. Um, I guess I'd mentioned it without genuinely without deliberately dropping hints. I guess I mentioned it to to my partner, Tanya, that um, this new Zelda game was out. And I guess I'd said I didn't have the money to buy it. It was, you know, like a 40 pound full price release. And uh, and she was obviously feeling flush and uh, and fanciful. So she came home with it in a bag from a shop for me that very day. And so it was a it was a nice surprise. And I wonder if. Um, you know, this, uh, the, the sort of, I think sometimes the way you even come to a game can leave you more predisposed towards it than, oh, yeah. uh, than, than even, even the playing of it. But I, I played it through in the way that you probably would if you were bought a surprise present. Uh, I played it pretty much nonstop for the next couple of weeks and completed it. Uh, came away with generally, uh, fairly positive things to say. Um, but I've been back to it 
uh, and that's not a but as in now I hate it, by the way. Uh, I've been back to it for the podcast. I haven't quite made it through to the completion for the second time. I'm on the penultimate boss. Uh, just ran out of time, but uh, I have finished it before, as I say. Um, and I've certainly played enough to refresh my memory of, of uh, what it's like to play. But I replayed it uh, because uh, I uh, did trade in that present, that kind present some years ago, probably for something else excellent as well. Um, so I've been replaying it on the Wii U but playing it entirely on the game gamepad held vertically so not bringing the uh, the TV screen into play because that seemed to work better for me but I will agree with Leah that there are some issues with playing it on the on the gamepad as opposed to a DS so obviously the developer is credited as Nintendo EAD uh, but this is a new director for a game. This is Daiki Iwamoto, uh, his first project for Nintendo. He worked on the famously unreleased Star Fox sequel for the Super Nintendo, Star Fox 2. He did some programming on Super Mario 64, uh, which we covered uh, way back in uh, Kane and Rint's history. Uh, he, did the, he worked on the cinematic sequences on Ocarina of Time. He was a coder also on Luigi's Mansion and then closer to this, uh, perhaps more relevantly, uh, Link to the Past and Four Swords uh, on the Game Boy Advance and then Four Swords Adventures. He was the boss battle director on the GameCube. Uh, and he also, in the meantime, did some work on programming the Pokemon Box, which was a uh, specially released um, sort of Pokemon collect debris, the sort of thing that they've released as a download for 3DS, but but on the old uh, on the old GameCube anyway. So, yeah, this was his first game as a director and only the uh, so I guess yeah, it was the fourth Zelda he'd done any work on. The producer, so, of course, is A.G. Onima and the writer is uh, Hidemaro Fujibayashi, who, as we know by now, was uh, heavily responsible for uh, the Oracle's games and uh, the Minish Cap and Skyward Sword and forthcoming Breath of the Wild. Uh, so it was released, as I say, on the DS in June 2007 in Japan and October 2007, almost the rest of the world except Korea, who had to wait until April the following year. And the Wii U Virtual Console version came out in November 2015 in PAL territories and May 2016, earlier this year in the United States of America. Uh, the reviews over the the gamut of the press were generally positive, but it didn't hit the magic 90% mark, which Zelda games were normally renowned for doing, uh, a game ranking of around 88%. But uh, something I've decided to include in these little rundowns from now on is a user rating score, because there are various places you can look these up, and this is where people go on uh, sometimes at the time and sometimes more recently and we'll give, give an idea as to what the public feel about the game. And uh, the user ratings for Phantom Hourglass uh, average out at a solid eight. And that's across uh, sites including Nintendo Life, Metacritic and IMDb. Uh, sales wise, um, now the DS Lite famously sold an awful lot of units and uh, the game over the world sold over 5 million copies, which again makes it, uh, I guess, uh, considerably short of the series heights. But uh, I'm sure also made it extremely profitable anyway, uh, I, I would surmise, though I can never be sure, of course. Uh, development began in, in 2004, ahead of the release of the original DS. Um, it was a project where most of the Four Swords Adventures team were looking to bring a Four Swords type experience or 
port even to the DS, uh, but it was really it was revealed, sorry, as Phantom Hourglass uh, in in more its uh, final form at the uh, GDC 2006 conference. Apparently in the game's original prototype, the action was actually on the upper screen while the touch screen was a map, uh, which is uh, will be familiar to players of DS games from the era. Uh, however, the developers believed that the, the interface uh, made that the, the player feel disconnected from the game's action, which is what made them uh, bring the action onto the two screens with you actually touching the, uh, the character on screen or touching the screen at least. Uh, and the fairy to move Link around because otherwise it, it felt too indirect, I suppose. There's a quote suggesting that uh, they felt the interface would appeal to Japanese players who prefer simple interfaces. Now, I don't think there's much evidence to support that based on the games I've played over the years, but uh, there it is. At E3 2007, Aonimus said that Phantom Hourglass opened up the Zelda series and gave a fresh new control scheme to the ageing Zelda formula. He also said that despite disappointing sales of Wind Waker affecting him personally, he still wished to continue the game's style in another Zelda iteration, leading to the inspiration for Phantom Hourglass. He also suggested that the simple controls would be the, mean that uh, Phantom Hourglass could be the first Zelda to attract casual gamers. I don't know about that. But yes, uh, so this leads into the fact, and here is your spoiler warning, that the game is set uh, directly after, well, some months after, let's say, the events of Wind Waker, and it is set in the same, well, let's say it's the same graphic style anyway, and we have that link and that Tetra, and they've gone off sailing, and that is when uh, fate befalls uh, Tetra and uh, they meet in. Uh, they meet a ghost ship, who sucks uh, Tetra away, and uh, and thus begins the quest. Link falls in with a uh, a swarthy uh, steep paddle steamer captain called Linebeck, uh, and as usual, uh, he's pointed in the uh, direction of adventure by a bearded sage-like character, Osius in this case and is aided and abetted by uh, a fairy character. So, Leah, how did you feel coming to this? Were you, were you excited for a, a continuation of Wind Waker with its looks and feels, or uh, was it? Oh, uh, would you have rather had something fresher? Well, I, I was really fond of Wind Waker, so uh, I, I, was, I was looking forward to it. Uh, and I, I like that they continued this because there aren't that many games in this series that, uh, despite what Hyrule Historia says, really follow along from each other, at least not not that yeah. came, came about directly as a result. This is literally, they have been on this ship that you saw them sail away on in the previous Zelda game, and now they're coming back to this exact same ship with these exact same characters. It's, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not just a, oh, this is a descendant and he's the, he's the hero of light as well. And you no, know, these are, these are actually the same characters, which I, I do kind of like that idea. Um, I have some issues with the art style because I love the Wind Waker art style. I really think mm. that it is very well suited to that. And they try to copy it, but the DS can't quite handle it. Uh, mm -hmm. So whereas it might have been pretty strong had they gone with something that resembled that art style, but maybe kind of took it down a notch, uh, like even something like the Minish Cap art style, which is very similar to the... Uh, um, the Phantom Hourglass and the uh, Wind Waker art style in many ways, if they had gone more in that direction, I think that it maybe would have been graphically stronger. Here it is polygonal and it's not 
it's just not very out there on uh, on a style level. The style level actually is more of what I want. Um, and if it's not um, using the most graphics, then that's fine. As long as it kind of evokes what you want it to to kind of go for. Um, and I, I think that Wind Waker does a really good job of that. And I think that they might have gone a little bit better if they had adapted that style rather than trying to uh, copy it completely. Uh, It ends up looking like a kind of almost an early PlayStation game or something with just, you know, the the really blocky, not very smooth. Uh, And the animations are fine, but the graphics just and it really drew it sharply into focus. This is one of the first things that I noticed when I started playing it on the virtual console is it looks terrible. It looks really bad when you blow it up to the size of a TV. Uh, It's it's just it's not suited to that. I'd be less bothered by it if it was like a completely different art style. So if if it was this kind of polygonal look and they just went in a different direction with it, I think I'd be less bothered. But you're you can't help but directly compare it to Wind Waker to Minish Cap because it's drawing from that aesthetic and for me it just it when I compare it to even the Minish Cap like the Minish Cap is another 2D you know handheld title and that game looks beautiful whereas this just feels a bit soulless in in terms um in terms of art direction and and just graphical fidelity well I say fidelity but just you know that on a technical level um and you compare that to you know Minish Cap and Wind Waker and those games are so full of soul so full of character and it's just not quite hitting the mark. I completely agree with both of you. This was exactly what I wanted to say about initial impressions. Now, bear in mind, back in 2007, uh, expectations of uh, resolution for handheld games were slightly lower. But even then, I did sort of find myself thinking maybe they should have continued with 2D on the handhelds for Zelda. Because, as you say, I think to this day, Minish Cap uh, has probably held up better visually uh, to my aesthetic eye anyway than than phantom hourglass uh and in the in the same in much the same way you mentioned early playstation in much the same way as games from a similar era on the ps1 at the time we were obviously hugely excited by games like metal gear solid going into polygons and that team did some amazing stuff with the resolution uh and the fidelity that they and the amount of polygons that they had at their disposal but right now if i was going to play a ps1 game i would much rather play symphony of the night Castlevania Symphony of the Night than I would play Metal Gear Solid certainly if I was looking to show off you know and and famously the, the you know the PS1 was designed to be a polygon a textured polygon powerhouse compared to the consoles that had gone before it and obviously that was the direction things were headed in and that is the direction we've gone in but right now I remember when the when the DS Fat first came out and I bought one at launch one of the reasons I didn't want Mario 64 apart from the 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 stylus or funny little thumb strap thing that they included uh, initially with the DS to play Super Mario 64 and I wanted to play it with an analog stick not one of not not a stylus control or a d-pad or a or a thumb strap it was also the fact that I thought it's kind of made there was something about the DS's graphical power which made it look like PlayStation it had those sort of, sort of le- that level of texture that level of um that those sort of that level of polygon, maybe similar-ish resolution. I don't know. So, so going back to Phantom Hourglass now, 
completely agree. The animation is sensational in a lot of places, like the the, the like the splashes of of uh, water when you fire the cannon into it, and um, the explosions and all that sort of thing. That's the the animation itself is great, but the resolution and the lack of polygons, I think, uh, dates it quite badly. Now, I certainly wouldn't recommend for a few reasons. Um, pl- having played through the Wii U, I've got a few DS. Wii U virtual console games and there are issues with playing them on the big screen because you either have to have the screen side by side or crammed up together very small or one one on the pad and and they give you a lot of options but actually the way I've played it through and ultimately got really quite used to it again is playing it with the gamepad in in vertical and apart from the fact that the um it's very easy to accidentally touch the back uh the right trigger when holding it that way and bringing up the save screen um that's annoying and it's less it's harder to hold the shoulder button whereas one of one, one of the main things about playing phantom hourglass is the shortcut shoulder button to activate whatever item you're holding at the time so if you're holding a boomerang you don't want to do the the laborious way of touching the boomerang and then touching the screen like the only way to play it as far as i'm concerned is hold down the hold down the shoulder button and then draw draw away draw away or point where you want to where you want to fire your arrow or your boomerang so this uh, playing on the Wii U gamepad makes this more difficult because it's just kind of awkward to hold because it's got that big it's kind of you know it's kind of a big fat thing compared to a tablet and it's got a big ridge where where it rests perfectly nicely if you're holding it as a normal controller um, but it it doesn't work so well so I having although I this is now the way I own it and play it and it was basically all right I would recommend people play it on either a DS Lite or a or a 3DS from the original DS cartridge overall. Leah, were these similar sort of issues you were having? Was there anything yeah, else? Yeah, they, they were. Uh, so I, um, the way that I eventually settled on playing it was uh, with the top screen on my television and the bottom screen okay. on the gamepad, which worked out for the most part, but it was kind of odd because I was sitting there with my TV on, but rarely yeah. actually looking at it because it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. most of the most of what was going on was taking place on the gamepad, and that was okay. Other than the fact that I tended to grip it way too hard and got yeah. hand cramps. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, it it just it was odd. Um, I it, it it's functional, but I I would agree with um, and I I think this is probably the first DS game that I have played on Wii Virtual Console. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I picked up at the same time that I picked up Phantom Hourglass. I also picked up Spirit Track, so I will probably same play here, that. Yeah. yeah, I will probably same play here. that in the same way. Yeah, but, yeah it was a, they, were, they they did a deal so yeah, intelligently, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. but yeah, I, I think if you have the choice, that I would I would recommend. Um, and I, I'm not sure if the Virtual Console versions can also be played on the 3DS or not. I I don't know. I didn't no, actually no, look no. into that. No, no, they can't. Um, no, oh, it's uh, it's it's Wii U only. Um, yeah, it's kind of a shame they're not offered as 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 DS downloads. It's it's to do with Nintendo's sort of supposedly sort of rigorous um, standards to which they hold their emulation. Um, now they like the emulation on on the Wii U better than they like how they can do it on on the 3DS, which I know seems crazy, especially with the N3DS. But now I I always uh, perhaps was laboring under the misapprehension that the emulation on the Wii U Virtual Console was generally excellent, but the recent release of the the you know the Mini NES console has rather shown up the emulation on the Wii U, certainly of NES games, as actually being not as good as they could have managed. I mean, it's decent, but the colours are a little washed out and stuff like that. But DS emulation from memory, it seems fine. Um, but it isn't. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's ideal. I, I, I imagine those releases have not sold 
uh, of any of the DS virtual console games. I imagine they haven't sold particularly well, um, especially given the Wii U's uh, fortunes anyway. But yeah, there it is. It's av- At least it's available. At least you can just go out and buy it. You know, uh, there it is. So uh, that brings us on uh, neatly to um, uh, we should probably put the sort of the specific issues of the Wii U aside now. But let's talk about you know, the game as it was designed, controlling it, moving your character and fighting. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, when I read criticism of Phantom Hourglass, uh, this is one of the two things that comes up more often than anything else. Josh, uh, are you one of those people who would just, if you could take this game and play it with a D-pad, is that what you'd do? Or did you embrace the stylus? There are moments where I think they do a really great job of justifying the use of the stylus. Um, and it's mainly um, through the, the puzzles and the use of the map and, and stuff like that. Like, I love mm. drawing kind of my coordinates for my, mm-hmm. um, for my ship. And I love being able to take notes and kind of, oh, right, so I need to do it in this order, so I better note that down for future when I go back to that puzzle piece. All of that stuff is great. Um, I I do like the way um, the grappling hook uh, and the the bow um, use the stylus as well. It's a bit more precise than um, most two, uh, you know, most two D Zelda games. Um, yeah. Usually, um, usually you're kind of stuck to very, you know, specific angles in terms of the grappling hook and eight angles actually. and and the bow. But for this, you have a lot more freedom. But it's just for me more than anything, it's just moving the character around that I find frustrating with the stylus. Mm. Um, it's fine when you're in the big open areas because you can just you know push the stylus to you know the far end of the screen and just run ahead. But whenever it requires you to do any kind of fine motor movements across like fin platforms or bridges and and stuff like that. It's too easy to just accidentally fall off or mm. or stuff like that, and I wish I kind of I, I kind of want to have my cake and eat it. Like there's a version of this game where you're controlling Link with you know the D pad, and yeah. you get to keep all the other stuff, which is my mm. ideal. Um, yeah, and I and I think when whenever you're fighting grunts, um, you know the the smaller enemies, actually just being able to tap on them was actually you know pretty great because he just kind of teleports straight to them and just whacks them with his sword, and it and it wasn't too much of an issue. Um, it's with the boss battles where it requires a bit more finesse from the player that suddenly kind of came up against the limitations of the stylus. I just, uh, yeah, I just think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Leah, how about you? I don't know that it does require that much finesse in the boss battles because, I mean, you, generally you'll have to do something to get them vulnerable, like throw a bomb at them or, you know, hook at them or do something. But then once they're down and they're stunned, it's how fast can you tap on them? I don't dislike the the combat system, but I think I, I, actually for the most part I agree with Josh. I, I think that if I could play the game 
with a D-pad for movement and probably mostly combat purposes, I would. I got used to it, and I don't think that it necessarily detracted all that much. But I don't know. It, it, the, the one that I kept thinking of when you were saying about um, about uh, movements like falling off of things and having to, to move with a little bit more care was um, fairly early on when you're in some of the sand areas, and there are sandworms underneath. And if you move too fast, then they'll come after you. But if you move really slowly, you're okay. Well, if you accidentally take a step that's a little too far ahead of you, then they're going to come after you. And it's it's kind of frustrating. Um, I, I think I do like I love being able to draw on my map. I liked um, being able to to make notations and um, for the most part, the things like when you do get your uh, your warping ability uh, and you need to kind of draw the symbols. I, I thought that that was implemented pretty well. Um, it it. I liked a lot of what they did with those features, but it's very much one of those games like Nintendo does that wants to take advantage of the features of their system because nobody else is really taking advantage of the features of their system. They're like, oh, we have a microphone. Well, we have to put that in 30 times. Oh, we have the touch screen. Let's make sure that everybody's drawing things and they have to touch to move. It it almost feels like overkill. And this is not a super early game, but it is the first Zelda on the DS. So maybe that's maybe that's what they were doing. They just hadn't quite figured out how to squeeze all of these things in and still make it the most enjoyable experience quite yet. Yeah, I've got so many feelings on this. Uh, again, like Josh, I'd say overall conflicted. I was speaking to Tony Atkins of uh, Kane and Rince the other day, and he was saying sort of, oh, well done, uh, for tackling this enormous Zelda project, uh, you know, you're two thirds of the way through. Aren't you bored yet? You know, just playing the same series of games over and over again. And I said, no. And I think that that is partly because uh, of the jump between, you know, 2D to 3D to handheld 2D again and back. And, and obviously we've seen it's like uh, like any series that you become very familiar with you notice the smaller changes whereas other people might say oh it's the same game over and over again obviously what we're doing with these cane and rinse podcasts is to look at the minutiae and the the differences and the changes in director and direction and one of the things that i said about going into phantom hourglass was that actually this will feel very different to playing any of the previous 11 that we've played up to now over this past year because it's got a very different control method it's controlled with the stylus the whole thing becomes less uh, grid based um you know feeling like uh, obviously there are still block puzzles and things like that where you move things around within the corridors but like movement feels as this is the first time that movement feels as kind of free form and analog as you say in the wider areas as it does in the in the 3D games whereas in the 2D games and I still I say this as uh, where I still consider Link to the Past probably my favourite uh, Zelda. So I so I've got nothing against sort of simple boxy grid based movement whatsoever. But this uh, this makes that whole feel different. But as much as I I can enjoy the 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 simple running around like you say putting the stylus at the extent of the screen and and running and you can curve in a pleasing arc around monsters and things like that. As you say, it can get a bit pernickety. They use um, sort of this is uh, a game with uh, a few sort of stealth sections where you want to uh, hold the stylus much closer and it tends to put you up against a time limit or, or in, in fear of being caught, which which can make it quite stressful. But but I actually found, you know, like walking across those musical floors that you have to keep quiet so things don't hear you. That all works quite well, where I think the stylus control does fall down. Is And this is partly execution on my part, because the more thought I put into it, the more consistent it tends 
more consistently it tends to work and it's the two spinny things it's the two uh, it's the roll where you have to do little circles at the edge of the screen and it's the sword spin um which is you know the traditional whereas it would have been on a stick now it's simple draw draw a circle on the screen basically to do a to do a full circle slash and occasionally i i i mess those up and that is frustrating i had some trouble with the roll i i, I don't yeah. know i'm not sure what it was that i was doing wrong but through the entire game i never really could consistently get the roll to work no i think it it is it is one of those things where if you do execute it exactly as the game is you know wants you to then it then it will work but then it, there's an argument you know which says if if loads of people are having the same problem which it sounds like from things i've read feedback i've read and and in research for the show a lot of people seem to have the same issues so there is an argument that the game just didn't detect it that well. I also had an, like like you, I enjoyed the uh, sort of drawing symbols to uh, warp about as well as other drawing things. But there's the one where you have to draw the Triforce on a dungeon in, door. In one, in one thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can't pick your, you can't pick your uh, pencil up. You have to do the whole thing in one line. Yep. I had the same problem. It's, it's the thing is it's looking for a certain uh, a place where you start as well so it's not just it's not just good enough to draw the triforce in one stroke uh, if you don't draw the inner triangle and then the outer triangle it doesn't really recognize it so I did that a lot of times before I gave up and looked it up and I have a feeling I did exactly the same in 2007 as well and there's other things like I completely agree with you both. Making notes is hugely enjoyable. I don't know exactly why, but um, I particularly enjoyed the wider reaching ones where you're actually on an island and you have to go around and make a note of certain things or um, connect certain things up and then find where the lines intersect and that sort of thing. I, I, you know, I, I found those really memorable because going back to them nine years later, playing it exactly nine years later... And a lot of those, even the shapes were still kind of etched into my head. I was like, yeah, there'll be one there and I draw that line and there's one there and I draw that line. So those were memorable because they were fairly much something that I hadn't ever really done before in a game. That's not true of every uh, DS-based puzzle in this, though, because I know a lot of people talk about the um, press the map together thing as being this revelatory puzzle. But actually, I'd done exactly that puzzle on a game two years before on a game called uh, Another Code, Trace Memories, uh, which is a puzzle game by Sing, which did the exact same uh, stamping the the DS together thing. Um, But it's quite possible Nintendo came up with that independently and separately but what i did have sometimes with a problem with the with the with the note making and the writing was that the dungeon it was substituting making notes for actually giving you a puzzle so it's basically saying look at these four slabs with instructions on and write the answer you know so like you know press pull this lever first pull this lever second and occasionally they would riddle it up a little bit so they'd give they'd make you think about it ever such a little bit but often it was just a case of write this number here write this number here write this number here and then follow the sequence of numbers and that doesn't really work as a puzzle from my point of view yeah um but then sometimes actually getting to the slabs of stone might involve a certain amount of puzzling anyway we'll come on to the dungeon separately but i just wanted to make that uh connection with the with the with the writing on the on the maps and charts stuff uh, felt a little bit like it was used sometimes instead of actually gameplay. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. Were there any other idea? Yeah. You mentioned the microphone. I know Josh, you tweeted when you first started playing this about the uh, shouting into the microphone in public awkwardness. Uh, and someone pointed out that you don't actually need to shout into the yeah, microphone. Yeah, you can, blow you can into just it. blow into it. <laughs> yeah, but 
uh, blowing into a DS on a packed uh, commuter train still looks very suspicious <laughs> to everyone watching. <laughs> Only if you're puffing and red in the face at the time. I, I, I think it probably just looked like you were blowing the, blowing the dust off, didn't it? <laughs> Possibly. But, I mean, <laughs> it happened with a frequency that I pretty much um, I stopped playing it because my intent was to kind of play this as part of my commute to work but I quickly abandoned that when um, so for example there's a guy who asks you to shout as loud as you possibly can to get yeah. a cheaper rate for a part that's right and yeah. like I couldn't have done like <laughs> e like blowing wasn't good enough for that guy like if I just no, blew no. into the mic it wouldn't have gotten the it was like the, a, the eight hundred rupees or something yeah yeah exactly so mm. I'm I'm sitting at home and Cat is looking at me with the weirdest look on her face like what are you doing and I'm just blowing into the, directly into the mic as like. With all the oxygen in my lungs, just like yeah. blowing into this mic, just so he could just charge me two hundred rupees for this part instead of eight hundred. I think I got mine for twenty by actually shouting, uh, really you know, properly, like full, full. I, I can't remember. I think it feels. Like, I feel like it was twenty. Maybe it was two hundred. But uh, <laughs> I definitely. Um, I waited until I was indoors on my own and put my mouth like over the microphone and actually shouted just so I could get it as cheap as possible. I think I got him to about yeah. two hundred, but yeah. Okay, maybe maybe it was two. Maybe it was two hundred. Maybe maybe I'm overselling my my uh, lung power. Or yeah, or maybe a secret bonus maybe. for going mental, uh, uh, as I did. Uh, yeah, but the thing I like about the microphone stuff, and and I always have a bit of a a soft spot for this stuff, even though we have seen it on and off for years. And in fact, it's a nice throwback to um, the very first Zelda, isn't it? Because it was the, mm -hmm. the Pole's voice enemy in the original Famicom Zelda, because the Famicom had microphones in its control pad. We talked about this back in January 2016. Uh, you made the Pole's voice enemies, the bunny-eared ones, um, curl up by shouting at them. And this game does exactly the same thing. And I thought that was really cool. And I And yet, and yet, even though we've been doing this series for a year... I still forgot when when I read the sign which said these enemies don't like loud noise. I did exactly the same thing um, and and threw a bomb at them and thinking, oh, they won't like this. It doesn't affect them at all. You have to shout at them. Uh, and there's also a blowing out a candle puzzle, which I, you know, it's always there good, are a it? few. Yeah. <laughs> side note, um, it took me, despite the fact that there is a little thing that actually says mic on it, it took me a little while to figure out where the microphone on the Wii U gamepad was. <laughs> It's very small. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very small. And it's not something that I've I'm actually kind of surprised used. it's I there. I, I can't think of any other game that uses it. I, maybe they were just looking ahead to putting DS games on there. I think they were. It was, well, because yeah, funny enough, it was the other day, it was the anniversary of the release of the We oh, Speak God. peripheral, which was, of course, <laughs> the add-on that you could put on your, like, rest on your telly to play uh, Monster Hunter or Animal Crossing, uh, Let's Go to the City. Um, and I think the Wii microphone was presumably used, supposed to be used for. Well, of course, there's a there was like a telephone app kind of thing where like you you message your you could voice message your friends, but only if they noticed that their light was um, flashing. It was the only way in which they were alerted. I always assumed it was like for voice chat for online games, but then of course. Like that, they don't, that would be they Animal Crossing and Mario, Mario and Monster Hunter. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, Mario Kart doesn't doesn't even nope. support voices. I don't think does it. So no, there you go. But it's there, thankfully. So we can play. We can at least blow candles out and shout at ship salesmen in virtual console games. Speaking of the paddle steamer, traveling around the world 
in this game is a bit different. Uh, I just mentioned it. You draw a line and then the ship follows the line and then really you're in charge of manning the cannon. Uh, so this is not hugely dissimilar, I suppose, to getting the wind going in Wind Waker and then following the wind. But uh, but there are some slight alterations and then uh, you're pointing the cannon rather than uh, with a stylus rather than uh, aiming it in a more traditional fashion. I feel like I had a perfectly good time. Um, I, again, uh, I think that going back to the sort of graphical stuff, the, the game and probably the audio as well, but to a less, notice, no, less noticeable extent, doesn't quite sell the atmosphere of this uh, of this cartoon sea covered world uh, as well as Wind Waker. But I still had a decent fun time kind of traversing the world, looking for islands. And when you do find islands in this game, although maybe it's over a smaller area and there are fewer of them, there's more stuff on the islands than there was in many of the islands in Wind Waker. So I had quite a good time traversing this particular world. How about you guys? I prefer this method of traversal to the original version of Wind Waker, where you had to stop and adjust the wind every time you wanted to change your direction. I prefer the current Wii U version of Wind Waker, where you can just get the sail that takes you wherever you need to go. Mm. The only issue that I really have with drawing your path, I think it's a neat idea, but it takes too long. Uh, It's slow. It's very slow. And I... once you right. get your uh, kind of teleportation, which you can do fairly early on, once you get that, it's not as bad. Uh, but I mean, if you're traveling all the way around from one sector to the other, then it, it does take quite a while. For me, you know, generally the combat's pretty simple and easy in in this uh, in this game. For when, when you're in the ship, you just mm. kind of point and click at the fish that pop up or um, pirate ships that decide to, you know... Um, fire cannonballs at you, but the the one thing the one thing that I really didn't like was those like trip wires that kind of randomly <laughs> appear. It was yeah. it felt like they were just punishing you for kind of drifting off like for even two seconds. Like oh okay, I've set my route da 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 da, da and I'm listening to a podcast or something, <laughs> and I get distracted, and then. They do a lot of damage. Like it's a whole one heart, and you know, for the, for the ship, it does take a while before you're, you know, properly upgrading the health of of that thing. So, yeah. um, like a whole heart going is actually a big deal. And if you it's make several, yeah, if you make several mistakes in a row, like, and also I don't know about you guys, but it actually took me a while to get the timing down for those trip wires. Um, I didn't realize you needed to hold and then release. Uh, the jump button mm. rather than just tap it. So mm. there was a couple of points earlier on, uh, early on, where I was just losing hearts left, right, and center to these tripwire things, which felt so like arbitrary. And what just why not just stick yeah. with the the regular enemies? Why introduce this as a threat? I really think that after some criticism that was leveled at uh, Wind Waker's sailing and we know from our research that uh, Aonima agreed with with it and uh, and they did a lot to rectify it in, in the HD re-release on Wii U, I think this was very much a 
people said they were bored of sailing, so we'll make sure that they can't take their eyes off the screen for a second by constantly chucking enemy fish and spiky things at them. So they've got something to do. I think it was a sort of reaction to that. And perhaps, yeah, I, I think they could have done without the the weird speed traps or whatever they are, the spiky gates. Um, you can actually, you can, if you, if you cannon both the, things that are carrying the um the spikes at either end you can either knock it right down or or sink it completely i'm not i can't quite remember but um you can make it a slightly less of a tricky jump anyway but um yeah it's all a bit odd and there aren't that many um different enemies which which hassle you throughout the course of the game there are uh, the ship combat is mixed up a little bit uh, at times there are a few um triggered boss encounters with special monsters including one where you have to kind of circle around it and um you know draw a chart then go back to the the cannon and um and that that was quite engaging for a while at least it mixed things up a little bit i thought you were talking about the health of the ship that's another thing that wasn't there in wind waker was it so this is uh, again a, a reason to stop you drifting off and just letting your paddle steamer go bear in mind as we say rather than this being the wind waker this is a a and a, a vessel a vessel with some sort of uh, engine non-sentient yeah and yeah and it doesn't talk to you it's it's the ss linebeck named after it's it's uh, it's captain you've got these four hearts and you were talking about leveling it up now i'm as i say i'm on the penultimate boss in my second playthrough 9 years on from the first um i've got like maybe half a dozen ship parts of the total collection of ship parts that looks like i think there's eight categories and i reckon there's about six or eight slots in each category of things so you know you've got rail you've got funnel you've got wheels you've got prow you've got uh, actual vessel body uh, and all this stuff and i've only found like a teensy tiny percentage of them and none of them seem to match so supposedly putting matching sets together gives you more health I've got absolutely nowhere near doing any of that, and I'm right near the end of the game. I think uh, finding those seems like a good idea, yeah. but they're too they're too difficult to reliably track down. So that's another one of these things where we've we've talked before with some of our correspondents, uh, particularly uh, Andrew Brown, regular correspondent who we'll hear from later, who is very much somebody who likes to collect everything in Zelda games, in, in games generally, I think, but um, to 100% this game in terms of getting everything for the boat. Uh, I imagine would be add an enormous amount to the runtime and, and you'd need to be very careful that you weren't missing optional chests in dungeons uh, and things like that because I think a lot of them are in places like that. Obviously, there are side quests on different islands. And oddly, like even though I've only collected like a tiny percentage of the total ship parts, I've already had a duplicate. So you can even get duplicates. And despite that, what I will say is that I do like the customization of the boat in that it does make me feel like I've got a little bit of ownership in the way that vanity items in games do. So I do go if I do collect a new part, I will go to the the boatyard on the initial island and like mix it up and make my boat look a bit different and uh, and give it some kind of level of uh, ownership. I did no, I did the same thing, and my boat is ugly as sin because none of my parts match either. But at least it's my ugly boat. Well, that's, yeah, that's it. Now the other uh, aspect, other than controls, that is, uh, I would say, is, is probably the most frequent criticism uh, levelled at Phantom Hourglass as a Zelda game. Uh, it tried something different, and um, I guess, judging by the amount of people who seem to really dis dislike the Temple of the Ocean King, maybe it was maybe it was a misstep. Um, so this is a dungeon that you return to. 
Uh, it's a dungeon that you visit several times and each time you can get a bit further and new enemies turn up and some of the items that you'll have collected along the way will aid your progress through. But the bottom line is that you will end up repeating two or three sections uh, four or five times, I think it is, throughout the course of the game. And this seems to be... And I understand it when you just say it out loud like that. It seems to be a real sticking point for many. Now, I'll give you my feelings on this in a moment, but let's hear from uh, Leah first. Do you remember playing this yep. first time? Was Did you find I it did. a real drag? And <laughs> Okay. I am one, one of them. them. Right. I, I, I did not like <laughs> this aspect of the game, and I, I think that my complaints about it are similar to most people's complaints about it. I just I don't like having to repeat myself. And there are, mm. I, I find the concept interesting. I like that it's supposed to be mm -hmm. that you're coming back to this with new knowledge and you're supposed to be able to blast through these upper level or through these lower levels. Um, well, I guess it yeah. is upper. Don't you go, you go down into the basement, don't you? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so the upper too. levels are supposed to pose little to no threat to you anymore. You're supposed to be able to use the knowledge and the new uh, weaponry and the new uh, inventory that you've collected to bust through these upper levels to get down to where you actually need to be. And I, I just didn't like it because not only are you going through this, there's also the added stressors of enemies that you cannot defeat until very late in the game. Uh, and yeah a temple that has a time limit. That's that's a killer, too. I'm not big on places with time limits, and this one has a very strict time limit, and if you if you run out of time, then you're going to die, because uh, you have save the zones, but once you get rid of your eponymous phantom hourglass, um, once you get that, you can go as deeply as, as you need to within that time limit, but then the temple literally starts sucking the life out of you, so you can't last very long if you don't have that. In theory, I feel like I should like this, but I really don't. It's too much packed in mm. that I don't particularly care for between the time limit and and the, the repetition. It just... I. I I had a lot of issues with it, and I think this is um, one of the things that I personally was glad that they took out for um, for Spirit Tracks. I love the concept mm -hmm. of a uh, of a temple that you come back to, and you kind of peel back the layers. Um, for me, it's it's just the amount of repetition that you need to do. If it was as simple as going through floors you'd gone through before and just kind of walking through doors that you'd unlocked previous mm. um, with a longer time limit so you could just rush through that and, and not worry about it later on, I think it, I would be less frustrated. But when you're kind of you know, carrying those um, Triforce pieces or, you know, things that represent the Triforce at least um, for the, you know, third time yeah. to the same location. Um, it, it just, it's just a bit tedious. And, you know, the, I actually kind of like the idea of a temple that starts to kill you after a certain time limit. I just wish the punishment for the enemies discovering you wasn't that they peel back more mm -hmm. of your time mm. because the time limit is already so tight that being punished in that way, you know, by being discovered by the enemies just feels a little bit too harsh. This is an example of something in this game where um, I, I love the idea, but I, I just, it's for me, it's the execution. There's, 
there are a few tweaks here where I think I would actually like this, but um, as it is, it's just very tedious and frustrating. I will say that I do like that one of the main treasures that you can find scattered around the world is more time for your hourglass. I was going to mention that. Yeah, you can you can make that time limit that is by default is quite is quite tight. Although you will you know find people out there who can do it without even losing any time of their uh, <laughs> of their of their time clock by. Uh, by doing it so quickly but yeah adding uh if you go on side quests and then dredge up the treasure which you know give you a couple of extra bit, uh, minutes worth of sand that can even just collecting two or three of those like six six minutes of extra time is mm-hmm. a decent percentage a decent chunk on my feelings on this were helped by the way in which i got the game and the way in which i played it so you know i often and we'll hear about this in the, in the next podcast, the Bloodborne one. I, I'm often somebody who starts a game, plays tons of it, then stops for ages, then comes back to it, then plays it for a little bit and then drifts away again and then comes back and plays, you know. Um, but with uh, Phantom Hourglass, as I say, it was a surprise present from a loved one and I absolutely blitzed through it in, in a couple of weeks, didn't really play anything else. And I got really, really good at the Temple of the Ocean King. So I like I was speed running it effectively, and that's that's what it is designed for. Um, and because I was so engaged with the game and so fully connected to it, I never I never got to that point of coming back to it and having forgotten what I needed to do. So it didn't. It was still repetitious. I can't deny that you it is literally repetitious. You you repeat actions. However. I think being fully cognizant of the abilities that you have and the new powers you've opened up mean that if you come back to it soon enough, you very quickly can tune into the shortcuts that you can make. And that I found inherently satisfying. Um, It felt like and I think that was I think that's exactly what the designers had in mind. But I think yeah. so the the flaw is trying to look at it semi objectively as possible as that is, is that. You, if you're not playing it that way and you're not that con- committed or connected to the game for whatever reason, it does just start to feel like a frustrating return to the same place over and over again, doing the same actions over and over again. Um, and yes, yeah, some of it is stealth based. Some of it you need to either walk slowly or stop and take out the uh, the sort of the sentry beacons and things like that. So, so it's not just like herring rush through the bits you've done before you still have to you're forced to slow down and take certain bits at certain times but you can really work out like the fastest route and i and i did find that inherently satisfying and i do remember playing this through the first time but the time i was on the the like the however many visits it is four or five i was just i was like i had tons of time mm-hmm. tons of time left because um because i got really good at it what I will also say is that now I'd, I'd necess- not necessarily ever fully intended to replay Zelda games until we thought about doing this podcast. And obviously this is one replay of this nine years later. Um, it doesn't lend itself that well to replaying <laughs> it because I don't really, and and against an, an overarching real world time limit as well, made it slightly less enjoyable. So I still don't, yeah, I, I t- I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a full apologist for it and say you're all playing it wrong because I don't think that's the case. But I, I, what all I can say is that I, the first time through, actually, I think I got it and I think I found the enjoyment in it that the the designers intended. But as I say, I can completely see why a lot of people found it a total uh, misstep or a stumbling block. I think that 
possibly what might have made it more palatable to me uh, would have been if they had actual shortcuts around some of the more I don't yeah. want to say tedious, some of the more uh, involved puzzles. Like I, I think Josh mentioned totally. like when you yeah. have to carry the uh, the blocks in and throw them into the pedestals, like that kind of stuff. You shouldn't have to do that twice. That's, that's just a little silly. And I think that um, being able to actually skip and, I, and if you want to go in and have things that are improved or, um, or made easier by having your new abilities, then that's great. But some things, uh, the comparison that I'm thinking of, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, Dark Souls does a great job of this. Chalk one up. I think I think that's my ding, first. Ding, ding, um, so, but 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 it's true. You know, it, it that is something where you know you you open those shortcuts and you are going through a lot of the same areas, but some parts of it that you have conquered before and that you have shown that you can do, you don't necessarily need to show that you can do the exact yeah. same thing in the exact same way. If there's something different about it, then great. You know, use those new abilities and use that new knowledge but if you're only doing the exact same thing again you just have to do it faster then that's that that to me i think is what threw me off uh yeah totally i was going to make the same comparison um and i think i guess my assumption is that if they if they were doing not that they will if they were doing the same as they did for twilight princess and wind waker uh, HD, but on say the N3DS for Phantom Hourglass, they were making like a you know a new, uh, prettified version, and and they were making refinements and and things. I think that's exactly yeah. what they would do to the Temple of the Ocean King. They would streamline it and not make people repeat the same actions over and over again based on feedback. However, uh, the Temple of the Ocean King is but one of uh, eight dungeons overall. I think um, we have the usual fire and ice temples and wind and a courage one, of course. Then there's the uh, the ghost ship which you visit uh, around halfway through the game and a uh, uh, spoiler it's not the end of the game uh, and then of course there's a final temple as well uh, so how did you feel about the non-repeated uh, temples the dungeon design in this particular Zelda Joshua Garrity I did enjoy the dungeons in this game um, again um, it's mostly whenever the the game kind of leaned into its strengths when um, it realized what um, the stylus did well. So any of the puzzles that involved kind of like making some notes and kind of drawing lines so you could see where they intersect and stuff like that, um, I really enjoyed. There are examples of dungeons that I think are less successful. Um, I'm thinking of the Ice Temple. Um, I forget the proper name for it. Um, but that temple, there are there's a lot of you know slippery floors, which you know are a nightmare <laughs> when you've got more direct control over a character anyway, but are an extra pain when you've got to you know move the character around with a stylus. But yeah, um, largely, um, like you say, uh, like you said before, um, Leon, I do think a lot of the puzzles do come down to. Um, find out what order you have to click the switches in and then um, click the switches in that order. But there is something, you know, speaking personally, there is something satisfying uh, satisfying about kind of doing that archaeology, kind of like figuring out the mechanisms of a temple by scrolling notes down and stuff like that. So while they're all pretty easy and pretty simple, 
um, it's it just keyed into something in my head where it's like, yeah, this this feels like I'm un- uncovering like an ancient mechanism and kind of figuring it out. Um, despite how easy it is. That's a really good way to put it. I, cause I, my main point was going to be that they are pretty easy puzzles, uh, and pretty easy experiences overall. Um, which mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a problem with, but I, I, I maybe would have liked to see a few more puzzles, um, that made the kind of use of the DS's features that they are, that they're doing, but with a little bit more challenge into them at, but I didn't dislike the dungeons, and I was kind of struggling to figure out why, but I, I really like Josh's explanation, actually. Um, I, I think that it's interesting, and I, I, I do like that they want you to be using that bottom screen to kind of make your own notes and to, to rely on those notes. And even if, even if the task is kind of just make sure you get those notes, and your little fairy, who we haven't really talked about, but um, your Navi substitute, if she's, she's telling you that you really need to take those notes down, then you should probably listen to her. Uh, but um, I, I found them interesting, but not very difficult is, is the bottom line there. Yeah, I would go along with that. Uh, I found them all satisfying and, uh, and there's some really nice uh, DS only item use, I think such as drawing the lines for the bomb chews and then timing your hitting a switch so that you hit it at the same time as the bomb chew that you've, told to go off around the houses simultaneously hit them and open something up that's quite cool uh i really like the the grappling hook stuff where you can either make yourself a a a, a tightrope to walk on or you can uh make it a uh you know a, a spring to launch from or you can even fire arrows against it stuff like that like you know f- felt to me like classic nintendo um design but using features that only this particular iteration of the game could really do because of that combination of um 2d uh perspective with uh with sort of analog um interface of the stylus um there are some interesting uh tweaks to dungeons that i think we should note this is the first game where you don't collect a compass and a map for obvious reasons i think i think it's the first anyway um you know it's been kind of a a absolute standard uh, of the series is that you know two of the things you're looking for are the things which help you navigate whereas now you start with a map and you can make notes on it there's also the pay to reveal chests which i i'm not such so keen on you go up to a, a gossip stone type affair and it tells you how many chests there are on a floor and then says for 20 rupees which is frankly not very much in a game where you're often wandering around with a thousand rupees it will tell you where the chests are then you can mark them on the map and then uh, and then uh, go find them most of them are mandatory anyway um, and a few that aren't tend to be for uh, either charts or things to power up your fairies with which we'll talk about in a bit but yeah it just felt a bit ironically paying to have your chests revealed felt a bit cheap and not very satisfyingly puzzly um, and generally the dungeons are just strictly linear like there's if you go back now to some of the earlier games in the series the the order in which you can tackle rooms and stuff um, is uh, you're given way more options and, and i realize this partly philosophy of uh, video games in general um, and also concessions to the you know the the time that modern players have and that sort of thing 
but for me, just really enjoyable and satisfying, but also that niggling sense that, um, yeah, perhaps, you know, they were they were a little on the easy side. One thing I wanted to mention, because I don't think we have up to now, is uh, Mark Brown, um, a guy who makes a YouTube series called Game Makers Toolkit, is currently working his way through um, the all of the Zelda games. Um, in He's sort of preparing to do a wider piece on... Zelda uh, as a whole series and and to talk about many aspects of the game, same way as we are. Um, but I have to say that his uh, his Boss Keys series on dungeon design is superb and it's incredibly in depth. Um, he's able to he has more time and obviously you know he's a skillful editor and whatever else to go into some detail about the actual philosophy behind the dungeon designs in each individual Zelda game. I think it makes a, a perfect companion piece to this series of podcasts. I've tried to reach out to him uh, thinking there might be some synergy. He has yet to respond, but, uh, um, but I recommend, recommend that you check those out. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, uh, Josh, I think you've watched these as well, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think Mark Brown is um, one of the more talented uh, YouTubers out there at the moment. I, absolutely recommend um his stuff uh, one of the things that he's been doing and I, i'm actually going to be interested to uh interested to see uh what he does for this game that we're talking yeah. about um, is these uh diagrams that he's done yeah, where great. he breaks down kind of the locks and keys and and kind of the journey you have to take through the uh, dungeon and kind of you know, stripping back um, the dungeon to its absolute kind of core components and getting yep. a sense of how linear or how yes. varied um, the uh, the games actually are, and it and it's really cool to see um, you know some you know some Zelda games where you think of the uh, dungeon as being you know big and expansive, but if you actually look at the yeah. sequence of events that you have to do in order to succeed. It's very much a straight path, um, which is, you know, why I'd be curious to see um, what, what he creates with this one, because I do think a lot totally. of this is a straight path. Totally. And I, I think broadly uh, his findings so far, I can't remember exactly where he's got up to. He's done the Oracles games, hasn't he? Um, yeah. And is he, is he up to the, he's done, done Wind Waker yeah, uh, he's he's around that sort of era, uh, so he's he's a little behind us. But then, if you see the graphics and stuff he does on his videos, you'll know exactly why. Um, the videos are kind of like I don't know, six to twelve minutes long each, or something like that. Um, yeah, on average, yeah. maybe. Watching these videos has made me more aware of exactly that. So coming into Phantom Hourglass, having watched a few of these videos recently, I was thinking one key now will i will it be absolutely impossible for me to get another key at this point while i've got one key to open a door and the answer is yes always every single dungeon in phantom hourglass if you have a key there will be at one locked door and you will use that key to open it whereas if you go back to much earlier in the series it's possible to uh, hold like three or four or five keys at one time in some dungeons in the earlier games and sometimes there'll be a key that you never even have to use and um and it's arguable whether it was simply looser design on Nintendo's part or just way more complicated for the player to solve i think a bit of both is probably uh, the answer so by this stage by 2007 we're kind of entering the the modern era of gaming and the um the solutions seem to be much more scripted and linear in that regard not that you know even the earliest zeldas had uh, the dungeons had a solution but now it it felt to me like it's you know it's being more and more spelled out i'm going to be interested 
to see because the next two Zelda games that we'll be doing for the podcast are ones that I've never played beyond the first hour or two. So uh, Spirit Tracks and Skyward Sword, obviously one handheld game and one uh, full-blown big console game. I'm going to be interested to see what the puzzle philosophy and the, the dungeon design is like in those. So I'll be coming to those fresh uh, some years after they were first released. So should be interesting. Well, for me, if for none of you. Uh, but yeah, the other thing about um, Boss Keys and Game Makers Toolkit is that it makes uh, it's one of the few things that I've watched in the last couple of years that actually made me think that our analysis isn't all that in-depth after all because it's really, really, like it's really exacting. But as I say, it is... Um, it is very specific to the to the one topic, which which obviously plays into being, you know, incredibly detailed about a particular thing. However, I think we've, you know, I feel like we've gone into some depth about uh, Phantom Hourglass without talking about specific uh, moments uh, necessarily so much. But yeah, if there's anything else regarding items, like I did want to say that, like just chucking, I mentioned the bomb tube, but just chucking the boomerang around, being able to, as fun as it was locking on in, in Twilight Princess and Wind Waker, doing multiple lock-ons, actually physically drawing. You know, I have I think maybe, is this, this is just coming to me as off the top of my head as I speak. I was somebody who, I'm not a great artist by any means, but I always used to love to draw and I can draw, you know, okay. So do you think stylus control works better for somebody who's just got a bit of a, you know, a bit of a hand for drawing, a bit of a natural wrist? Is it easier for somebody like that to draw the shapes and draw the arc of the boomerang and stuff? Is, is somebody who's a bit of a cack handed person with a pen, is that like less enjoyable for, for stylus controls? Is I that don't think something? that it's like, I can't draw to save my life. I have trouble with stick figures. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily less enjoyable. It, it depends on how exact they need you to be. Of course. Uh, yeah. Mm. And in this case, it, you don't you don't have to be completely exact, particularly no. for things like throwing the boomerang. Hit points or, are large, aren't they? Yeah, yeah exactly. So it, it's, it's not – I still had fun with that part of it, and I enjoyed that part of it um, because you didn't have to be an artist in order to, uh, to complete most of what they wanted you to get. So um, I, I think that if they had been pickier about it, I might have had a more difficult time. There were some things in, for instance, Okami that gave me uh, some issues. Uh, but, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. but here I didn't really have any, any issues on that front. For me, um, you, you've already briefly mentioned this Leon, but the, this is kind of my favorite, uh, edition of the, uh, bomb mm. chew, um, because the amount of control you have over its, uh, direction and being able to kind of move independently of it, just, you know, set it off on its little route mm. and be able to do your own thing. And then, you know, some of the puzzles that they, you know, create with that in mind are really, really clever. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I love the drawing for stuff like the bomb chew and, and the boomerang. Um, I think the, you know, the grappling hook and the bow are the, the big success for me. I think uh, they're much more precise than any of the other 2D Zeldas I've played. Mm. There's a few other interesting choices that the, the the control and the design leads to as well, I suppose, in terms of the items. Like you pick up a shield early in the game. Uh, there's only the one shield and, well, you can or you can just not. But essentially all it is completely non-interactive, isn't it? Essentially, it just stops you taking any chip damage off 
weak creatures. That's it. Um, or weak, weak projectiles. So there's no real, you know, shield play in this game like there is uh, in, in other games. I suppose that makes it different. There's also less uh, kind of upgrading of Link in the sense that um, I think you can get a bigger bomb bag and a bigger quiver, but that's about it. Um, there's no bottle farming. There's no, like, you know, we've had games before now with, I can't remember what the maximum is. We had at least five bottles in one, or was it seven in one of them? I can't remember, which obviously you fill with potions. But in this, you just go and buy the potion. Um, there's three different colours now. You've got red, purple, or yellow, which uh, refills you completely in purple, revives you. There's no collectible fairies anymore. So there's quite a few sort of little tweaks that, you wouldn't necessarily think of, but actually, you know, make some fairly fundamental changes to the things that you spend your time doing in a Zelda game. Another aspect that uh, I think makes some, for me, makes some very cool use of the DS's features, and those are the bosses. Uh, now, they obviously aren't able with that uh, low poly, low res presentation that we've already talked about, aren't able to uh, be as eye-bleedingly gorgeous as as those in some of the uh, the predecessors on the um the dedicated home consoles but i think generally they 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 are effectively designed to look um you know you can you clear you can clearly see what's going on and they've got some cool animation but this is where for me again like coming back to this nine years later one of the things that i remembered really strongly was the crake who is one of the screens is looking at you like you're seeing through his first person perspective and that's how you defend yourself by aiming towards where the second screen is looking and that sort of stuff i thought that was pretty cool um there was some perhaps more expected deflecting of uh deflecting back of projectiles which was a bit uh wishy-washy with the stylus controls and things like that but um i thought it was a decent set of bosses without ever again without ever being particularly difficult or challenging yeah i, I didn't uh i didn't find that there were very many standout bosses, but I also didn't outwardly hate any of the bosses, I don't think. The the one where you have to escort the sisters around before you fight them was a little uh, a little iffy, but um, I, I didn't have any real issues with them. They weren't particularly difficult, but again, I, I don't think that most of the game was. A standout for me was um, Gleok, the uh, two-headed dragon. Um, just because, you know, it, it, it's a familiar scenario. One head, it breathes fire, and one head breathes ice, and the ice damages the fire head, and the fire damages the ice head. But just kind of using the unique um, mechanics of the stylus to draw those, um, you know, bouncy ropes with the uh, grappling hook and kind of timing it with the attacks of the enemies... I thought that was really fun, fun use of the technology that they had at their disposal. And it, again, like, like with the dungeons, I think all of these bosses are, you know, pretty easy. Um, but there's some fun uses of the mechanics. Um, and another one, um, that I'm thinking of now is, um, Eox, which is the giant stone soldier, mm-hmm. um, where you kind of launch yourself into the air and then just hammer. Um, him to pieces mm. um, again really simple really easy but it's just really mechanically satisfying to just peel back the layers of stone on this massive giant uh, creature so I think there's some some neat stuff in there a few cool ideas and again I suppose things that couldn't easily be done 
on a different system or with, without that particular control setup. So I suppose in a way, I don't know if it's contradictory, but I think it's an interesting balance, isn't it? We were talking earlier about the desire for Nintendo to either show off or or, or um, advertise the features of a certain machine by by using things. And in some ways, you you know, it can come across as gimmicky or unnecessary or things, you know, th- there's a reason these things are gimmicks and not available on other consoles and other developers aren't using them because they're perhaps not as much fun as the established control methods in the same way that, you know, after every... Uh, dalliance with other control methods we keep coming back to variations on a control pad a d-pad and a joystick and buttons um but then again some of these i some of the things that i like most about phantom hourglass are things that were only possible because of the interface i guess how well we each feel that balance was met is perhaps how our overall summaries will come out the other, uh, another sort of uh, fundamental sort of difference in, in character progression in this game is that there's no heart pieces. Uh, I'd completely forgotten this. Playing it at the time, I don't think I was that sort of aware of it, but you only get, you get, an, you get a new heart for, for finishing a boss, same as all the other games. But is that it? It's, I think that's, that's the, is that the only way you can... There are a few other... Um... I think that there's one at the very end of the fishing stuff. I never actually got there, but I think that there Uh, is. When you find the guy, and this is actually a pretty funny side quest, when you find the guy who's calling himself a hero and is riding on the Prince of Red Lions or whatever it is, uh, if you get to the end of his training stuff, he gives you a heart. But it's never heart pieces. It's always a full heart. No. Yeah, so they're pretty rare. Yeah, I think I must have got some... I think I must have got some first time through, but I was, uh, you know, taking a slightly faster path through. But I noticed on the video of the thing that I was stuck on that I mentioned earlier that I can't remember now that the the uh, the drawing the Triforce. I noticed that that person had more hearts than me, so I was thinking, how does that work? But yeah, so it's so there are a few. Side you don't quests. really need them that much. It's kind of a, and if you get there, then that's great. But y- you can survive perfectly well on just the ones that you get from the bosses. Yeah, and there's a the, yeah, so there's a trade sequence which I've not engaged with on this playthrough, but it's only a five item trade sequence. I don't know if I, either of you have done this. No, I didn't. No. So sorry, uh, completionist <laughs> listeners. We are not those players again. So sorry. Uh, <laughs> we may be missing out on either the best or the worst parts of the game, in your opinion, depending on <laughs> your play style. Um, and there's also the fishing. Um, there are there are six distinct fish to catch. I tried um, fishing twice and, and then uh, said, "Nope, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I, it was not for me." Yeah, pretty much the same. People either love fishing mini games or, or they don't. Uh, seems to be seems to be the way. Um, I quite like the dredging for treasure, though. Uh, I, I remember enjoying it rather than in in Wind Waker, which you simply you know found the spot and and put the put the arm the crane arm into the water. Now you have to actually uh, kind of steer it down. It doesn't really make any sense that you can see what's going on down there in the perspective that you can. But uh, but it, I rather liked it. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the fishing mini game from Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. Um, slightly more complex and uh, yeah you get to control this little speed it up and slow it down and it gets blown about by these little spiky mine things some of them squirt a bit of current at you and you have to stop the arm completely getting smashed before you get to the bottom you have to take it all the way down and all the way up and it's got some quite nice undersea graphics in there and then you have to go and repair the arm 
Uh, and I quite like that. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, I, I that was as you say, it was uh, better than I think better than uh, Wind Waker's. Just you, you click the button and you get your treasure. Yeah, well, as I said in the Wind Waker podcast, especially in the HD remake, where because they'd sped it up because people got so bored of it, it felt like the sea <laughs> is like three feet deep, which didn't didn't do the atmosphere of the sea a lot of favors from my point of view. I engaged with it a little bit. Um... But ultimately, I, d- I didn't think the rewards were kind of worth the effort. Um, Often not. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, so not not much, to be honest. Now, my memory is uh, hazier on the, the final conclusion. I, I, I remember the sort of the way it pans out after uh, after res- rescuing Tetra in sort of midway through the game. Uh, you find out that, of course, there is a bigger, badder thing at work. And this being Bellum, which I read somewhere is Latin for war. And uh, this is an evil squid phantom that is sucking the life out of uh, this uh, land of the ocean king. Uh, that we're in uh, via its medium of the ghost ship um, so and obviously the final boss is a case of going back to the the temple of the ocean king and finishing it off now uh, remind me is it a, is it a, a suitably grand final boss fight there's kind of two stages to this uh, final encounter so you've got the squid monster encounter inside the temple um, where you have to um traverse kind of three layers so at some points the squid will come out of its little pool and kind of settle on uh, one layer of uh, of the battleground so there's these stairs that you have to go up and down to fight um this boss on on the different layers and you'll um have these tentacles that you have to target with your bows to get him to crash back down into his pool um, and then after that, you can kind of uh, use your hook shot to kind of get into the side and, and target his weak spot. And that's fun. Um, it, it kind of focuses on the the strong suits of the stylus controls, uh, you know, focusing on the bow and the grappling mm. hook. Then, um, uh, actually, this is a free stage. I almost forgot this second stage where mm. it possesses the ghost ship and then you kind of... Um, you chase after it. Thankfully, you don't have to draw a line. It kind of uh, does works on autopilot from that point mm. onwards. So you um, you just fire at the eyes on the on the side of the ship while also trying to um, shoot the uh, plasma balls that it's firing at you out of the sky at the same time. And then um, the squid monster possesses um, Linebeck. Um, and uh, forms this kind of suit of armor around him. And Mm. then it becomes about um, kind of controlling time, so stopping time when the weak spot behind him um, uh, exposes itself so that you can, you know, get behind him and and stab, stab, stab. Um, And, yeah, I think it's mostly successful. Um, The one thing I would say about this whole ending, and, and this is kind of a criticism for me for the whole narrative of phantom hourglass is that there's almost no point it being a sequel to wind waker because Mm. everything that makes it a sequel to wind waker gets quickly abandoned in the first five minutes of the game and tetra is a statue Mm. for almost the entire run of the game they're they're really fond of making her a statue (laughs) yeah and Mm. and then you realize all of this stuff that's happened 
just hap- like occurred in you know another part of the world or a completely different dimension yeah. that's not associated with the Wind Waker world and everyone on your ship when you get back is like oh mm. well only 10 minutes has passed like <laughs> where have you guys why are you guys so yeah. shocked and why are you so stunned so <laughs> it has no impact on the world of Wind Waker at all um, which I find to be a really odd you know odd choice like none of the characters that you engage with with the original Wind Waker are a huge factor in this story and the one character that is is you know literally objectified for the majority of the mm. of the story's run it's it's kind of a disappointment in that I regard. guess it's not so different to the in fact, it's very similar, really, on paper to what they did with the fourth Zelda, Link's Awakening, compared to Link to the Past. In that it, you know, it was originally it was going to be a uh, an actual remake. It turned into a spin-off slash sequel, but in the end, it's this. And they woke up, and it was all a dream, or was it? Kind of, uh, kind of conclusion. So they do throw a wrench in that all a dream thing by the fact that it's it's Link and. Tetra stroke Zelda, um, but but yeah. still, it's yeah. the same general idea. You know, it's it's something that happened that mm, everybody mm. else is going to tell you didn't really happen. So, and and I just um, you know, regardless of what I think, uh, the the sense I get is that where whereas we we had a real outpouring of affection for the conclusion of Link's Awakening with the Windfish and and all that, um, with this one, people seem to be more like yeah. And then they woke up and it was all a dream or yeah, like you, like you say, Josh, it, nothing felt, it didn't feel, uh, you know, like it had like what you done had any bearing on anything kind of thing. So I'm not sure what that is. Cause actually we are now entering the sort of era of, uh, in the mid two thousands, I guess it really started, uh, maybe even slightly earlier. I'm thinking about paper Mario and so on. Nintendo started to take their localization into the English language mm. much more seriously. Um, they started to get really uh, good people on doing these sensitive, uh, witty, warm influence, uh, sort of uh, reference laden translations. You know, we've seen it particularly people often talk about the writing in the Mario and Luigi RPG series um, and, uh, and the fire emblem. And in fact, most of their, most of their IPs have been translated. Now Zelda has less writing in than a lot of those, but in this one, I think there's, there's a lot more kind of um, verbal humor than in, than in Zelda's past. Um, And I think this was a, a trend sort of starting in 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 around this era so people do seem to have uh, also you know some of our correspondents seem to have affection for linebeck even though he is um a seemingly uh, you know he he follows a very classic um you know rogue to hero archetype uh, follows that character arc he looks to be based on johnny depp as captain jack sparrow in the pirates of the caribbean films um but because of because he's got a few zingy one-liners and um, a few funny put downs and things like that, I think people seem to seem to have a bit more affection for the characters in this game compared to some of its predecessors. But yet, um, overall, the actual the story I don't feel seems to have uh, that many supporters. Having said that, I watched one video, uh, a, a sort of game theory type video, but by somebody else who. Um, I will credit as the theorizer, 
Yeah, the theorizer, uh, who goes into some depth uh, examining the subtext and uh, comes up with uh, the theory that um, Bellum is actually the th- each each of the um, the sort of the three ocean gods. So the golden frog, the uh, Oceus himself, uh, who is a whale, in fact, and Bellum represent their their sort of dimensional equivalents of um, power, courage, and wisdom, uh, and uh, power has run amok, basically. So, there, so there is a bit more to it than that going on, but that's not the sort of stuff I would have engaged with had I not been making a podcast like this one. Um, but anyway, the truth is out there. Check it out. I think we're all just going to say we haven't played it or we don't remember playing it, but we have to acknowledge it's in there. There's a battle mode, a multiplayer. Uh, I'm pretty sure I would have given this a go back in 2007. Um, I think there's you can play it as a single player or as a as an online multiplayer or as a local, uh, you know, DS to DS kind of beam beaming. What's the phrase? I don't know. Sort of local multiplayer DS to DS kind of thing. It was never something that I planned to engage in. It, it might be one of those modes where it might be like there might be a real brilliance, a genius to it that I've never experienced, but. We've had no correspondence about it and I've never really read anything about it and we haven't experienced it. So um, apologies, fans of the (laughs) the Phantom Hourglass battle mode slash multiplayer. Let us know if you gave it a right, proper playing, because genuinely, I I always feel bad about dismissing these things out of hand and just saying, well, none of us have played it. And, uh, you know, I think not that Kane and Rince listeners would ever hold us to this sort of thing. Or maybe if we did ever go pro because we were being paid, you know, thousands of pounds a month in Patreon, they would say, hang on, you should have played the multiplayer as well. We paid you. Um, But right now it doesn't really work like that. But I'm always conscious that I've played games where people say, oh, I never touched the multiplayer on that. And I say, but it's genius. You've got to try it. Like, imagine if no one had ever played Monkey Target on Super Monkey Ball because they just bought it for the monkeys rolling through the gates and collecting the bananas. When everybody knows that Monkey Target is like one of the one of the great multiplayer gems of that entire era. This might be like that, but just nobody's played it. So we don't know. We've probably been remiss, but equally, it's not that easy to play a DS multiplayer game in 2016. In fact, I'm not even sure it works from the, uh, certainly the multiplayer wouldn't work on the Wii U Virtual Console. So anyway, enough from us for now. Let's hear from the community at uh, canarince.com slash forum. No emails this week, but you can email us podcast at canarince.com. First up, a new contributor, the delightfully named Good Shrewsbury who says, wanting to play or replay many of the, quote, better Zeldas, I dove right into Phantom Hourglass as it seemed the most likely successor. In March 2015, I had planned to play through at least half a dozen Zeldas in quick succession, but this one stopped me flat, and the momentum crashed to a halt. Starting this title, there was the typical Zelda whimsy that grips everyone who enjoys this franchise. The dungeons were pretty cool for a handheld entry. On the back of Wind Waker, it had a very familiar aesthetic that I really enjoyed. The new control style was a tad clumsy, but I knew that given time, Zelda would win me over, as is the usual with any new entry and its associated quirks. However, the controls were so very putridly awkward. After probably five to six hours with this game, I never developed a comfortable way to utilise the gimmick pushed by the dual screens of the DS. It broke this game completely for me, and I've tried twice to come back to it, but it only gets worse the more I try. I truly am envious of those who embraced the control scheme and enjoyed this title, as I'm sure there was a lot to love. 
I found myself begging for legacy controls a la Minish Cap, etc., because constantly moving the stylus over the same screen I was watching Link on was terrible. If somehow the player could have moved Link on the top screen, I know it's not touch sensitive, that would have been wonderful, so I could have seen what the hell was going on. Sadly, the controls did it for me. I haven't been back to Zelda since. There you go. That's the extreme end of the anti-stylus feeling. Next up, Gaio Pinto. I've replayed a lot of Zelda games for the podcast this year, and playing them all so close to, to each other showed me just how different and unique Phantom Hourglass is. The most obvious example is the stylus-only gameplay. It changes everything from combat to item management, but that control method also allows for some very different gaming experiences. The focus on cartography and map-based riddles makes some of the puzzles more visual-spatial in nature than previous games. Phantom Hourglass uses other DS hardware features that wouldn't have been possible in older titles. Some, like closing the lid to transfer the map seal, were pretty neat. Others, like yelling into the microphone to lower an item's price, were kind of lame. I really did appreciate the new types of unique experiences that Phantom Hourglass provided, though. That being said, I think this is one of my least favourite Zelda titles because of what it had to give up in order to fit these new experiences in. I recognise that a lot of what I enjoyed about Phantom Hourglass required stylus-only controls, but I think the stylus-only controls ruined the combat in the game. It was never that difficult, but I was also never fully engaged. When I took a hit, I got frustrated because I didn't feel I had full control over my character. Before I get to my final point, I want to point out that Phantom Hourglass is a really funny game. There's a moment where Oshu asks for Link for the titular Phantom Hourglass to finish making the final sword. Link starts the thrust new item overhead in triumph animation, only for Oshus to nonchalantly grab the hourglass out of his hands. Linebeck also has a well-deserved it's dangerous to go alone joke. And there's a moment that serves as microcosm about my overall feelings towards Phantom Hourglass. At the very end of the game, after you think you've beaten the final boss and rescued Tetra, giant tentacles come out of nowhere and snatch her up once again as Link, Link's mouth hangs open in disbelief and Linebeck yells, What just happened? On one hand, it was a funny scene that made me laugh in a way or most Zelda games don't. On the other hand, in order to make that joke work, they took the most fun, charming incarnation of Zelda, made her even more of a damsel in distress than she ever was in Wind Waker, and then kidnapped her again, all in service of a punchline. The joke just wasn't worth it what it had to give up. Phantom Hourglass does some cool stuff that is wholly original and expands the concept of what a Zelda game can be. Unfortunately for me, the game just wasn't worth what it had to give up. Lovely stuff, Gaio. Next we have Stan Shaw. Phantom Hourglass was the game that made me buy a DS. I remember seeing the TV advert with the spin attack carried out by a little circle on the touchscreen and then drawing the flight path of the boomerang, extinguishing torches like a dot to dot. I was absolutely thrilled by the imagination and invention and the gameplay possibilities of the technology. I talked about it to my non-gaming mate in the pub that night, got him excited, and the next day we both bought a glossy black DS Lite. It's still probably my favourite ever console, a perfect marriage of form and function, and the greatest fingerprint collector of all time. That said, while I gamely persisted with Phantom Hourglass, and it did have its moments of utter delight and invention, having to use the stylus for basic movement gradually sapped my enthusiasm and engagement with the game. In particular, the roll mechanic was utterly unpredictable and inconsistent, and therefore infuriating when it was needed. Now, that may be partly down to the screen protector, which was misaligned by about half a millimetre on one edge of the screen. As I say, I was pretty excited when I tore the box open. But the point remains that the control method was willfully unconventional. 
As many have said, a combination, a combination of D-pad and stylus was both what I'd expected and what I think would elevate the fundamental gameplay today and make for a much more tempting replay. Similar feelings then from Stan Shaw. Next up, we have the aforementioned regular correspondent, Andrew Brown, who's also written about this uh, on his own blog, which I believe is called Play Critically. Check it out. Andrew says, I can anticipate the two primary complaints that will be levelled at Phantom Hourglass, the touch controls and the Temple of the Ocean King. I do not contest these complaints. The touch controls are imprecise, particularly when I'm also required to slash with a sword or roll into an object, and my hand tends to fall asleep while holding the stylus. The locking nub digs into my finger, leaving a sore. A spirit found deep in the temple exclaiming how much better touch controls are than buttons and a D-pad is obnoxious salt in the wound. I am sympathetic to these complaints. I think it was only many, many hours tempering my patience with my, and my fingers with Metroid Prime Hunters that let me weather Phantom Hourglass with few complaints. As to the Temple of the Ocean King, I think it is correctly maligned, but often misunderstood. I don't want to cast aspersions on any specific people who may complain about the temple, especially on this very podcast, but it is a common complaint about Zelda that it has become formulaic, that it has become predictable, uncreative and rote. So I appreciate that the Temple of the Ocean King tries something new. It is not a dungeon which is attempted once, but it is attempted multiple times, at least five total, if not more, for greater mastery, with new paths discovered through old areas thanks to new tools. I feel that, had its challenge mode time trial aspect been made more apparent from the outset, my frustration at repeating flaws multiple times would be lessened, like learning how to power slide perfectly around every corner of every track in Mario Kart. But there are other things I can admire unabashedly. Few other games in the DS library make better use of its technology. I'm not sure why the ability to take notes on a map did not become standard on the handheld, and the press the map puzzle has since become the stuff of legend. The bosses are all very good, reaching admirably to use both screens in creative ways. I don't feel they always succeed in accomplishing what could not be done with a single screen, but bless the developers for trying. Then there's Linebeck, who may be my favourite supporting character in the Zelda series. He injects some much-needed humour. Keeping an eye on Linebeck in the background of a scene usually leads to a good laugh. I think it's important to remember that the link in this game is the same from The Wind Waker. He has already completed his hero's journey, so putting him through another one would be either boring or redundant or both. So it falls to Linebeck to be the traditional hero of Phantom Hourglass who goes through his own Cambellian monomyth. He begins cowardly, out for his own profit, but meets a mentor, Oceus, and goes on a trip with a companion who contrasts his own strengths and weaknesses, Link. It's a subtle transformation over the course of the plot, but his concern that Link complete the quest transforms from greed to heartfelt investment at its success. When confronted between a choice between his own life and helping his friends, he chooses his friends, even though he is clearly out of his element and almost immediately suffers a great personal loss for it. But he makes the right decision as his friends bail him out and he chooses his reward, not great personal wealth, but merely another chance to go on another adventure like the one that made him a better person. Though I recognise its flaws and weaknesses, I find myself liking Phantom Hourglass thanks to the ideas it tries to capitalise on, as well as a strong character like Linebeck. I put the Wind Waker to task for having a big world with very little in it. It was not dense. Phantom Hourglass is the other extreme. Its world is small, but there is always something new around the next corner. What draws me to Zelda is its spirit of exploration and discovery, and Phantom Hourglass does a wonderful job exuding those virtues. Thank you, Andrew, as always. And concluding with our most positive 
review of uh, Phantom Hourglass, and that comes from Craig. The Phantom Hourglass is one of my favourite experiences on the DS and one of my favourite Zelda games. It's one of those experiences that has been so thoughtfully designed with the DS in mind that to try and remove them from one another is madness. It's rare to see a game that pretty much any design choice in the game can be inferred by the limitations and strengths of the hardware it appeared on. Obviously the game uses the touchscreen first and foremost, moving around is easy and intuitive as is attacking and item use, although make sure you use the L button as a shortcut. Every time you get an item, the dungeon gives you a new toy and then slowly builds up and develops everything you can do with it, often in unexpected and elaborate ways, much like Phantom Hourglass does with the DS. Every hardware feature on the DS is exploited from the wonderful wireless multiplayer, there you go, see, to the interesting use of dual screens for the bosses and throwbacks to using the microphone to defeat enemies in the original Zelda. Even closing the system lid is used. It also works some pretty impressive tricks with the hardware, somehow managing to squeeze out two fully 3D displays at the same time, no doubt to some kind of smoke and mirror programming wizardry. But it's not simply how the game controls that it is dictated by the hardware. This philosophy runs deep through the veins of every part. As this is a portable Zelda, the dungeons are not sprawling vast spaces, but rather tight and claustrophobic, with doors circling back on themselves after being opened from one side. Obviously, this was so that if you stopped the dungeon halfway through, say because you arrived at your train destination, but it also has the intended consequence of each dungeon feeling like a small intricate puzzle that you're slowly figuring out. For most games, being able to write on the map would be a feature itself, but Phantom Hourglass develops this, giving you riddles that force you to think carefully and mark the map. The Great Sea, like the Wind Waker, is there to hide hardware limitations and gives the impression of vastness without the oomph needed to pull it off. There are one or two things I dislike, however. Opening a chest to find a treasure chart just annoyed me. It felt like an unnecessary step. There was no challenge. The spot was marked clearly and the minigames fairly simple. Instead of reaping my reward, immediately I had to partake in busy work. If the charts were something like Red Dead Redemptions, I would have loved it. Perhaps a riddle or a small picture hinting at its location. But it feels a bit like an opportunity missed. The music ranks from brilliant in cutscenes to grating in dungeons. Unfortunately, it's the latter you'll be hearing more often. It's not so much that it's bad, it's just kind of nothing. It's a game that you really have to go to get any to go with to get anything out of. If you lament the fact that it's gimmicky or you just want to play with regular controls, you'll be missing out. Thank you, Craig. He also uh, points us towards the tie-in manga. If you go to our forum, canerince.com slash forum and go to the uh, Zelda topic, you can find links to some details about the Phantom Hourglass manga, which he has some nice things to say about. Uh, we should say uh, this is the first time we've ever got this far in a Zelda podcast without mentioning the music. Um, and I think uh, that's probably because what Craig said there is how I felt. So I didn't think to bring it up. Um, it's got some nice pieces and some completely forgettable pieces, but overall I'd say the soundscape in this Zelda is probably the least memorable of any Zelda that I've played up to this point. Uh, would any of you care to contest that or disagree? Not particularly, although I do think it's worth noting that I think um, that they do pretty much just pull a couple of things straight from Wind Waker. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there, there's a few, and there's a few tunes from other earlier uh, you know, mm -hmm. other Koji Kondo uh, compositions from Ocarina and things like that, which, are, you know, obviously have that effect. Um, but yeah, it's, for some reason, its audio didn't make much of an impression with me on either playthrough. Interesting for a Zelda, that is, isn't it? 
Okay, folks, uh, as always, we have some three word reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Canem Rince. Okay, um, we start with Will Archer of Zelda Informer. Painfully mediocre quest. Francesco says Ocean Temple hate. And Harrison Brockwell says too much stylus. Zeke Peter says not quite right. Gaio Pinto, physics defying boomerang. Duke of Jam says fun wee game. Craigity Craig says a touching tale. It's good and it's clever. Uh, well done, everybody. Thank you. Uh, the usual spread uh, or or rising tide mark of opinions there. But how do we feel? Well, I think you've probably gathered to an extent, but let's see if we can summarise. And do we actually recommend that people seek out Phantom Hourglass and play it? Hmm. Josh? I commend Phantom Hourglass for kind of experimenting with the formula. Um, There are some really um, compelling ideas in play here. I think the concept of a temple that you return to is something you know i'd like the series to explore again and have a second crack at um i think the stuff it does with the stylus when it comes to the puzzle solving and the note taking a lot of that is really strong and by and large you know by and large the dungeons uh, are fun and and so are the boss battles but having to do everything with the stylus, um, whether it's movement, uh, combat, um, every little thing. The fact that you're limited to this one piece of input, um, aside from you know the microphone and and stuff like that. If <laughs> there are just there are so many ways where you can think of how this would be easier if you just had a more standard control scheme. Um, you know when you're you know, walking across bridges, it shouldn't be that easy to just fall off. Um, and, you know, I think aesthetically and and in terms of audio, this is probably the least inspiring entry in the series for me. Um, it's it just, it, none of it really sticks out in my mind um, when it comes to the art direction and, and the... Uh, sound design or the music and this is the follow-up to wind waker again that for me is a high point in the series for all of that stuff so yeah i i I think phantom hourglass there's some neat conceptual stuff in there but ultimately it kind of falls down in execution in execution in some key areas um, and ends up being, aside from Zelda 2, one of my least favourite entries in the series. Fair dues. Leah, how about you? I think that part of what really throws me off about Phantom Hourglass is that it is so clearly trying to iterate on Wind Waker. And on the Wind Waker podcast, I mentioned that that is my favourite Zelda and has been for a while, and I, I stand by that. And this, I, I don't think that it's a bad game. And there are things about it that I really do like. Uh, and, and I think that it's interesting and fun how they use some of the features of the DS. And particularly considering that this is the first of the DS titles, it, it's not perfect how they do that. And, and maybe it didn't need to be perfect, but if it had been its own game, 
if there had been a few more options, if they hadn't tried to make it a a technically superior game and had just focused on the design angles. There's a lot of ifs here. And, and if, if any of these had been the case, then I don't know if I would have liked it more. Maybe I still wouldn't have, but I, I'm not, not a big fan of this game. It's, I, I, I can't even tell you where I'd put Zelda 2 because I did not replay it when the podcast replayed it. But I, yeah, no. no. But uh, this is not one of my favorite Zeldas. It is, in fact, on the lower end of the scale for me. And and as I said, I don't think that that means it's a bad game, but uh, there are many Zelda games that I would recommend before I would recommend this one. I do feel like I am the most positively disposed to Phantom Hourglass. Um, and I don't think that's only because it was for me as a, as a lovely surprise present while i think it does lack some of the atmosphere and the magic and the charm and the sparkle of other legend of zelda games that i might prefer to it i think that's uh partly although not exclusively due to its uh sort of low poly low resolution presentation and by the way i think you know obviously low resolution uh does not uh, preclude games from looking good but i for me uh 2d style pixel art works better in resolutions associated with 16 and 32-bit consoles than polygons do but that said if someone was asking me to make a list of uh the nintendo ds games from you know however long that system was around 2005 to 2011 ish i would include phantom hourglass on it i wouldn't necessarily say you know this is one of the zelda games you got to play but as a, a handheld nintendo game of the last 10 years just about um i think it's got some really really interesting stuff in it um both in terms of use of the features and um ultimately as a set of as an adventure and a set of dungeons that while not extremely taxing uh i've had a thoroughly good time playing through twice now um all but one of them, which I've only played through once. Um, and in fact, I will continue uh, as we're about to head into our uh, between volume break. Uh, even though I've played 12 Zeldas this year, including this one and another with, with another half a dozen or, or whatever it is uh, next year, I am still going to finish Phantom Hourglass because I'm enjoying it enough. I want to see the final boss. I want to see the last dungeon um, and I want to see the conclusion of the story. So, yeah, um, I'm definitely in the more positive about Phantom Hourglass than some camp, um, but perhaps not as much as, say, our most uh, effusive correspondent. Um, and it sort of boils down to me. Uh, I don't know what it is about me. Maybe it makes me the, the most person with the most tedious and bland opinions ever. But my I seem to tie in with the I mentioned those user ratings right at the start of the show. Uh, the Nintendo Life Metacritic and IMDb punters all giving this around an eight. And I kind of, I feel very, very similarly to that, uh, which, as I say, makes it a long way short of certain Zeldas, but um, still worth a play in my book. Ideally on the DS though, or, or the oh, yeah. 3DS via definitely agree the DS card. <laughs> don't, play the, don't play the Wii U version if you can avoid it. However, that is how I'll be playing Spirit Same. Tracks. Uh, hopefully it won't yeah, because I, I, I did used to own the cart, but I don't anymore. So um, we'll see. I know uh, Spirit Tracks also divides people from what people have been saying to me over the last few months as they know we're coming towards it. Uh, so it'll be another interesting one. Uh, that's been the first year of our Zelda series. Uh, and 
yeah, we'll be back in January with uh, Spirit Tracks podcast. We still haven't decided exactly what we're doing for sure about uh, Triforce Heroes. The answer is probably not giving it a podcast. And Breath of the Wild, depending on when it comes out, we don't exactly know what we're going to do with that because we didn't want to do it when it's brand new. But anyway, you don't need to know about that. Uh, it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Josh and Leah and to tell you all that next time in issue 250, we conclude our fifth volume of the podcast with our Bloodborne issue.